Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Have you ever wondered if you can make a rub joint with liquid hide glue? Are you curious about the benefits of fishtail and skew chisels? Are you looking for some good titles to add to your woodworking bookshelf? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 13 of the show for October 11th, 2017. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank all of the folks who support the show over on Patreon, including Bill Elliott, Arcadius Joukowsky, Bill Warnock, Krista Kay, Lawrence Polinski, Jeff Skiles, Joe Delorier, Jens Rosendahl, and thanks to a new patron this week, Matt McGrain. Thank you, Matt, and everyone for your generous support of the show. And if you'd like to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So not a lot going on in the shop the last couple of weeks. Uh, in fact, I don't think I've done much of anything or even stepped foot really in my shop uh, since the last show. I've really been trying to focus on working on the cabin uh, the last few weeks. Um, you know, So I really haven't had time to get out into the shop. I'm trying to get the last things done that need to get buttoned up before the winter. Still have a few uh, exterior projects to complete to make sure everything gets closed in. But uh, hoping to get that done maybe in the coming week. Um, I'm actually taking vacation from the day job uh, next week so that I could spend an entire week just working on the cabin, trying to, to button up all the uh, exterior projects before things get too cold. And, uh, you know, that way I can have a, a, a sealed up house ready for the interior work to uh, occur over the winter. So. Uh, so yeah, not too much going on in the shop. I did, uh, one exciting thing, at least, well, it was exciting for us anyway, the, the last week or so was that we, uh, we bought a tractor and I know for, uh, for the folks, uh, in most of the cities and suburbs, uh, you know, not such an exciting thing, but, uh, you know, it's a purchase that we've been putting off for as long as we possibly could, but, uh, we're getting to a point now where we just can't avoid it anymore. We're on 24, 25 acres. Uh, so we do need some way to maintain it. So uh, we we broke down finally and uh, and bought ourselves a tractor. So that was my uh, my excitement for uh, for the week. So let's get into our uh, questions for the week. Our first question comes from Rush, and he wants to know why are cabinet makers screwdrivers, um, the ones with the oval handles shaped with a fat broad bevel along both flats at the tip. I've read of people complaining that they don't hold well in the slot of the screw head because of the steep angle fat bevel coupled with recommendations to regrind these to have thinner straight sides fitting into the screw slot. But I'm sure there must be a reason that they have this flat bevel grind. Perhaps screw slot shapes for traditional cabinet screws are or were different. Um, so I, I think you might be onto something. Um, older slotted screws were slightly different. Um, I, I do believe there was some taper to the slot in 
many older slotted screws. Um, and I believe that there's also a desire. So the, the straight sided screwdrivers really came from gunsmiths, right? And that's, uh, that was their design to, for maximum hold in screws that are, are used in the firearms trade, um, so that they don't slip and mar the finish of firearms. There may have been some taper to the slots of old slotted screws because they were they were handmade. Um, but I'm not sure that that taper was as steep as what some screwdrivers um, some screwdrivers come with. I think there's a couple reasons why we traditionally see slotted screwdrivers, traditional screwdrivers have a straight taper rather than a hollow grind to, to give them straight sides. Um, first, I think, you know, it, it had to do with ease of manufacturing. If you look at old turn screws, and I'm talking about, you know, an older pattern than, than what you're referring to, they're oval, they, they still have the oval handle, they're flat, usually flat on the sides. The blade itself is just a flat piece of steel that goes from the handle all the way to the tip. And it's usually a pretty gentle taper that goes all the way from the handle, starts at the handle or very close to the handle and goes all the way to the tip. So that taper is so slight that it usually makes the, the turn screw fit the, the screw pretty well. Um, the other thing that we see, the other reason I think that some of the, um, some of those old screwdrivers are, are the way they are just came down to ease of manufacturing when they started to mass produce these things. It was much easier in a factory setting to just grind them, grind the sides of the screwdriver flat at a taper and, you know, hope that they hold good enough for the screws. Um, I do believe there, there is also, um, some desire for cam out. And that's the reason that Phillips head screws were actually developed. Um, you know, people complain about Phillips head screws, but Phillips head screws were actually designed for that screwdriver to cam out of the screw so that you didn't over torque it. Um, I think there's some of that going on with slotted screws as well, traditionally, where that, that tapered shape would help the screwdriver cam out of the screw um, before breaking the screw, if it was over torqued, um, I'm not hundred percent sure of that, but, um, really I would think what it comes down to was, was, uh, manufacturing costs. And that's why they were that, why they changed and, uh, you know, why they were just straight sided tapers. I think it was just easier to manufacture them that way in a factory setting when they were being mass produced. And that's why we see them the way that they are. Um, and keep in mind that, you know, most tools traditionally were left to the tradesmen to do some final setup, right? When you got your tools, when you got your planes or your chisels um, or your saws from the tool maker, the idea was that as a tradesman, as a craftsman, you would set those tools up the way that you wanted them. And most Japanese tools are still that way today. Well, once mass, once mass production of tools came around, and tools started being sold more to, you know, homeowners than craftsmen and tradesmen. Um, 
they there was this expectation that everything was going to be ready right out of the box. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. And a lot of that prior knowledge of how to set the tools up properly um, just kind of got lost over time as manufacturing uh, became more industrialized and mechanized. And the tools became more for the homeowner and the do-it-yourselfer. So a lot of that knowledge was lost. Um, but, you know, I would, my opinion is that, you know, a tradesman or a craftsman that got a set of screwdrivers or turn screws knew how to take a file to them and adjust them properly. And, uh, you know, that, that just, that knowledge got lost and along the way, you know, we, it just became that they were just cheap and that, you know, the, uh, they weren't right and that you needed to fix them. Um, and I think that's really what it comes down to is it was a manufacturing cost issue um, and some of the knowledge of the user getting lost along the way with the advent of the in industrial revolution and mechanization. So our next question comes from Jonathan and Jonathan says in episode 10 on hide glue, you mentioned rub joints. The last time I looked into rub joints for panel glue ups, I remember seeing some information that suggested that liquid hide glue didn't really work as well as hot hide glue for rub joints. That discouraged me from trying it with liquid hide glue, but I'm curious if you've ever tried this technique with liquid hide glue, and if so, what your experience was. So um, what you're hearing is pretty much true, that, that you really can't do good rub joints with liquid hide glue. Um, the rub joint really works for the same reason that hammer veneering works. If you're not familiar with hammer veneering, essentially what hammer veneering is, is a method of applying veneer to a substrate without the use of modern technology like um, vacuum bags or, or lots of clamps and calls and things like that. Essentially what you have is a veneer hammer, which is nothing more than a large squeegee. You apply hot hide glue to your substrate. You apply hot hide glue to both sides of the veneer, and then you press the veneer down to the substrate using the hammer or squeegee to squeeze out all the excess hot hide glue. And the idea is to keep that surface warm um, while you're working, to squeeze out all the excess glue, and more importantly, all the air from underneath the veneer, um, and then just let it be. And you don't have to use any clamps or calls or anything like that. Well, the rub joint works the same way. You apply your hot hide glue to the joint, to, to both surfaces that are, are going to be glued, and then you rub the two pieces together. And as the two points, as the two parts are rubbed together, the air and the excess glue are pushed out of the joint. And as the glue cools and tacks, the hot hide glue cools and, and tacks up, it holds everything in place until the glue can fully cure and set. The problem with trying to use liquid hide glue in a rub joint is the lack of that tack. So hot hide glue, as it cools, starts to tack and grab. Liquid hide glue doesn't have that characteristic. It actually lubricates rather than tacking up. Liquid hide glue has, uh, it actually has a really long open time, like 20 to 30 minutes of working time. So, you know, if you apply liquid hide glue to both parts, you can rub the parts around and push the excess glue and air out, but the glue doesn't tack like hot hide glue, so it doesn't hold things in place. So over that 20, 30, 20 to 30 minutes of open working time that liquid hide glue has, the parts have time to spring apart. 
and then air can get into the joint before it has time to properly bond. So that's for the most re- that's for the most part that's why liquid hide glue doesn't work so well for rub joints because in most cases everything is not 100% perfectly flat and coplanar um and you're going to have little air pockets and you know if you have a spring joint you know something that's slightly uh, a joint that's slightly sprung where you know put, putting the pressure on and squeezing the glue uh, the hot hide glue out is enough to spring the joint closed and then as the hot hide glue tacks, it holds it that way. The liquid hide glue won't do that. The liquid hide glue simply will release the bond because it has just too long of an open time. There's no tack. There's no grab to liquid hide glue. Um, and that's really why it's not going to work because it's just not going to set up quick enough to allow that that initial tack, that initial grab to hold everything in place. Um, so, you know, my, my luck with... Um, with liquid high glue rub joints just has not been uh, very good. And, and if I'm going to do something where I, uh, I create a rub joint, um, I'm pretty much always using hot hide glue. So our third question comes from Damien. Damien says, I have a fishtail chisel that serves me pretty well for the all important task of cleaning out the tight corners of half blind dovetails. I'm willing to buy or make a set of skew chisels for dovetailing if they will offer an advantage over the fishtail style I currently use. Rather than forge them, I would likely buy a couple of quarter-inch Lee Nielsen bench chisels and grind them into skews. Do you feel that a pair of skew chisels performs better than fishtail chisels than a fishtail chisel for this task? And also, what are your choice? What are your thoughts on the choice of a quarter-inch for the skews? So I have used both fishtail chisel and skew chisels um, quite a bit for for dovetails, um, as well as for other tasks. And these days, my preference is really for the fishtail chisel, at least for dovetailing. Um, I have much better... I, I don't know. To me, it's just much easier for me to not have to switch between chisels all the time. If I'm going to, going to clean out half-blind dovetail sockets. All I have to do is pick up the fishtail chisel. I can get both corners very easily without having to switch chisels. Um, it's real easy to get it in there, to move it around. You know, the, the angle of the fishtail chisel sneaks right in and, and just does a great job. And the other nice thing about the fishtail chisel is it sits flat against the bottom of the um, dovetail socket. So with a skew chisel, the skew is usually pretty significant. So you're going to kind of poke the corner into the corner of that dovetail socket, and then you kind of have to slice across um, across the baseline you know, w- with the corner of that skew because the bottom of the skew chisel isn't sitting flat on the bottom of the dovetail socket. With a fishtail chisel, it's basically just a flat, straight chisel um, where the sides are ground into a fishtail shape so that the corner of the chisel can get into the dovetail corner, but you can still pair straight down the baseline of the dovetails. And to me, that's just a, I just prefer doing things that way. Um, uh, it just feels more natural to me than sliding a chisel across the baseline, trying to slice little pieces out. Um, and then I can also use the fishtail chisel um, to easily co- complete pairing the, um, the adjacent face of that cut, whereas the skew chisels, you can use them, but they're kind of a pain. So I, when I used skew chisels, I would find myself constantly 
switching back and forth between a regular bench chisel and the skew chisel. Whereas with the fishtail chisel, once I'm finished chopping out the dovetail and um, cleaning up most of the waste, I can switch to the fishtail chisel and I can do the rest of the pairing just with the fishtail chisel and not have to worry about constantly switching chisels. And I find I go faster that way because I'm not constantly having to put down one tool, pick up another, put that one down, pick the fishtail up again, put, you know. So what I find skews tend to be better for is carving work. Um, and in, in most cases with carving work, you're using a double bevel skew, but you can, if you don't have a, a, you know, a double bevel skew chisel, you can use two single bevel skews, um, as well for carving work. Um, and that's really where I find skew chisels to excel to me. Um, they're not a whole, they're not really all that useful for most joinery work, um, that I do. I find the fishtail chisel for me at least to be, um, to be more useful in terms of size. I think my fishtail chisel is a half inch and that seems to do well. Most of the time, my dovetail sockets, my half blind dovetail sockets are at least a half inch wide. Um, so I'm able to use that half inch, um, fishtail chisel in order to, to get in there for skews, you know, again, because, because most of my use comes with, of a skew is, is for carving. Um, I use, I think my, my skew chisel is a half inch, but again, my skew chisel is a ha is a double bevel carving skew, not a pair of single bevel skew chisels. Like you might want to, like, like, like you might use for joinery. Um, I, for the most part, don't use skew chisels at all for joinery. So our last question comes from Gregory. Gregory says, I'm working on a portable workbench design as my first project because I'll be moving to a new state soon. So building a nice full-size bench is not feasible right now. The design I'm working on is a three foot wide, 21 inch deep, three and a half inch thick top that will mount on top of a sawhorse or a pair of sawhorses, I'm assuming. I'm taking this approach to minimize space and make the bench portable for the upcoming move. The top will mount on the, the horse with wedge tendons so that it securely attaches. I'm contemplating building the top as a giant vise, similar to a workmate. One half of the top will be fixed in the rear with the front being a movable chop, twin screw or twin pipe clamp style drive with dog holes in front and back to clamp work. What do you see as the drawbacks of this type of bench? Do you believe it's too small to do furniture jobs, <coughs> excuse me, box building, hand plane building, etc.? Would you have any suggestions on another type of small workbench to start with? So I think what you're describing, essentially a workmate, a, a three foot wide, 21 inch deep workmate, I think it can work. I think the limitations you're going to find are the weight. Um, no matter how many sandbags you add to that base, no matter how, you know, I mean, you're talking about making a three and a half inch thick top. Um, you know, a three and a half inch thick top, three foot by 21, even, you know, if you were to make that out of solid oak, is probably only going to weigh, you know, 50 to 75 pounds. You're not looking at a, a really, really heavy workbench here. So can you, can it be used? I think if you're looking at real small projects, boxes, um, you know, small sh wall shelves and things like that. Um, hand planes, you mentioned building hand planes, maybe, um, you know, that might, might work. Okay. I don't think it's going to be very good for 
furniture work bigger than, you know, than a small box. Um, you know, three feet might seem like a lot of room, but when you really get down to it, there's not a whole lot of room to, to put things and, and to work. Now you might say, well, it's, you know, a, a dining room table leg is only 30 inches and that's true. So if you have someplace else where you can store all your supplies, you know, that might work just fine where you can just use the bench for, you know, cutting your joinery, for example, if you just want to, you know, make, do your mortise and tenons on that, um, that work mate. But, um, it's going to be probably too small for most assembly. Unless again, it's a small project. It is also very likely going to be too small and too lightweight for planing. If you're doing planing of your rough stock with a joiner and a planer, maybe that's not an issue. Um, but if you, if you have to do any heavy planing, um, of, of wood, that bench is likely just going to scoot around. It's just not going to be heavy enough to stay in place while you're doing your planing. Um, I have a, what I call my portable workbench. It's actually four feet long. I think it's about 18 to 20 inches deep and it's a three and a half inch thick dug fur top. I use it for my sharpening bench. Um, but again, it, it's very lightweight. I mean, I can lift the top off and, and put it back on by myself. Um, I use it, you know, I'll take it places for demonstrations and things like that. And I have to make sure that either the ground is very rough, you know, like out on pavement or something like that. Um, or I have to put a lot of weight on the shelf on the bottom because it, it walks around if I try to plane on it. So, um, I would suggest, you know, you're going to want something bigger if you're going to be doing any serious amount of hand planing. Um, for me, if I was going to build what I would consider a portable bench, I think I would prefer something more with a top about five feet. Um, Roy Underhill made a small Rubo style, not exactly a Rubo, but uh, a small solid top, thick top workbench uh, on his show several years ago. And, and it's actually, the bench is in his book, The Woodwright's Guide. Um, and it's a, it's a five foot top by about 18 inches deep, I think, uh, roughly. He used a, a single thick wide piece of maple for the front part of the bench and the back part of the bench, he turned into a tool well so that there was no glue up or laminating for the top. And I thought it was a really neat design for a portable bench. Um, the front of the bench was thick enough and wide enough to allow you to, to plane some stock. Um, at five feet, it would even maybe allow you to run some short moldings. The, um, it was probably heavy enough to stay in place. You know, it was heavy enough where he could, it was light enough where he could move the top around and set it up himself, but heavy enough that it, it you know, it sort of stays in place when you're, when you're working at it. Um, I think, you know, three feet is just going to be, you know, it's almost half the size of that bench that Roy built. Um, and it's, you know, it's a full foot shorter than my portable workbench. And, and I think my portable workbench is too light. So, um, you might have a little bit of a challenge with that three footer. One thing you can do, um, and this is something that I've seen done with workmates. If you can secure your saw horses to a, a piece of plywood, uh, for example, get yourself a four by eight sheet of, um, three quarter inch subfloor material. Uh, it, it's thick, it's heavy, 
but more importantly, it's bigger than the bench. And if you can secure the base to that, you can stand on that piece of subfloor, that piece of plywood, and that will keep everything from moving. Um, so that's a possibility that might help with your, your design. But if you're not going to be securing those soil harshes to the floor somehow, um, I, I think you're going to find that it's not going to be adequate for planing. For joinery, it might be fine. For assembling small boxes and things like that, it might be fine. But if you plan on doing any kind of serious hand planing on the bench, I think you're going to find it's going to be a little bit inadequate. So that's all for the mailbox for this week. As always, please, please, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions for the show because the show depends upon your questions. You can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to the brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. After the break, I'll be right back with today's main topic. Hey, everyone. You know, you heard me talk at the beginning of the show about supporting the show by becoming a patron over on the Patreon page. Well, now I want to talk to you about another option that you have for supporting the show. You may or may not be aware that one of the services that I offer on my website is handsaw sharpening. I've been sharpening handsaws for almost 15 years, and I've done so as a side business for almost 10 years. If you have a handsaw that needs sharpening by sending it to me, the proceeds will go to help support and grow the podcast, and you'll get your handsaw professionally sharpened and tuned in return. You can find the prices for the various saw sharpening and restoration services that I offer by visiting my website at brfinewoodworking.com and clicking on products and services. After you've reviewed the saw sharpening services that I offer, you can use the email address or contact form on the website to get the process started. And if you aren't sure exactly what work your saw needs to get it back into working shape, just send me an email and ask. I can help you figure it out and get your saw cutting better than new. Thanks for your support, everyone. I really appreciate it. So today's main topic was suggested by several different listeners of the show. They want to know what's on my bookshelf and what books I would recommend. So... You know, I have I have quite a collection of books on my bookshelf, so I certainly don't want to take the entire, you know, weekend to go through and, and talk about every single one of those books in detail. Um, but what I've decided to do is is go through, look at the books that I have, and pick a few that I would recommend if, you know, to someone just getting started or someone looking to kind of pursue the avenue that I've pursued because you can really go in so many different directions with this because it depends um, exactly, you know, what your interests are, what type of projects you like, what type of furniture you like, et cetera. Um, you know, what types of tools you're going to use. Um, there's so many different ways you could go. So um, what I kind of wanted to focus on was how, you know, how could someone kind of go down the path that I've gone down um, with hand tools and, and, you know, from a historical perspective, nonetheless, and uh, and what were, would be some of the books that I would recommend. So what I've tried to do is separate my recommendations, and I've picked, I've actually picked 16 different books, um, which is probably a lot, but I'm going to try to go through them relatively quickly. Um, but I've tried to separate them because there's really two different, what I would call, um, 
classes or, or, or um, types of books that I, I really look at. So the first would be what I would call books on tools and techniques. You know, these are your books on how to cut joinery, how to restore tools, what types of tools you need, et cetera, et cetera. The second type of book that I have on my shelf that I find I buy more of these days rather than the, uh, the techniques books are the books that I use for project and design inspiration. And these are totally different because most of them, and I'll say most of them because there are, you know, a couple of books that sort of cross the line between both of these, but most of them in that category um, are not covering how to make the joinery, how to, how to use the tools. Um, instead, they're more just inspiration for, for the types of things that I build. So let me start with the books on tools and techniques. Um, and this is a list that I've, I've, I've probably discussed a lot of, if not most of the books on this, uh, on this list before, but most of them are, are actually older books. Um, so my first one is Mechanic Exercises by Joseph Moxon. And um, if you've been around the internet for any period of time, you know, around the internet woodworking community, you've probably heard Joseph Moxon's name and Moxon's book touted time and time again by uh, the hand tool elite, some people like to call them. Um, you know, really what Moxon's book is, is it's a good introduction to tools and joinery of the historical period. Um, his book was written in 1703, and it was the first English language book written on the subject. And anyone who's read the book and, and, and studied other similar period texts is going to tell you that, he, you know, Moxon stole a lot of what was in there from, um, you know, books by folks like Randall Holm and, and um, uh, uh, Falabian. So... You know, it's not an original work, but it's it's the first English language origin, uh, work that really covers the detail that that is covered in that in that section. And it's not just on on woodworking, on joinery. It's on a lot of other parts of the craft as well. Um, but it gives you an idea of the types of tools and the techniques that they were using back in in the late 1600, uh, late 1600s, early 1700s, because Moxon, Moxon wasn't a woodworker himself. He was a chronicler of the trades. He wrote about these different trades and documented the things that they did. Um, why we, why I like these old books is because a lot of the newer books on the craft on the, uh, are, are somewhat biased because we have this, um, this belief, you know, where our, our thoughts and our, um, what our understanding is a little bit skewed by the fact that we have access to machines. So you'll often hear things, um, people say things like, well, you know, I, I have my tailed apprentice, you know, the, the joiner and planer, my tailed apprentices, because the apprentices did that work. The fact of the matter is when you, when you start to do a lot of this work by hand and you start to study this, um, you know, it's, it's very, very, very unlikely that apprentices did that work. Um, and I'll go into, you know, that, that's a podcast for another time, but, um, you start to understand these things when you start to read some of the older texts. 
um, on how these things were done. So, so mechanic exercises, Joseph Mox in 1703, that's, you know, uh, my first one on that list. The second would be uh, the Art de Menusier by Andre Roubaix. Now, this one just came out in English, translated into English, thanks to uh, Don Williams and the great folks at uh, Lost Art Press. And uh, it's a it's a great read for, again, understanding 18th century woodworking and understanding woodworking when all they had was hand tools. And again, it's very hard to separate ourselves from the machines and and the mindset that we have. So to go back to these older books really helps to understand how things were done when that's the only way that they could be done. Um, getting a little bit more, a little bit newer than, than Roubaix and Moxon, we have uh, Peter Nicholson, The Mechanic's Companion in 1845. Again, a book very similar to um, to Moxon's with a little bit more detail than what Moxon had in there. And we start to see a little bit change in tools. Nicholson's book covers more tools than Moxon's does because now we're starting to see saws, English saws, change a little bit um, between Moxon and Nicholson. And some of the planes, right? we start to see you know more planes like dado planes that aren't mentioned in Moxon's book are are mentioned in Nicholson's book. So we start to see things becoming more quote unquote modern in, uh, in Nicholson's book. So from Nicholson in 1845, I'm going to jump all the way up to the third quarter of the 20th century with a book called country furniture by Aldrinay Watson. Uh, and this book really goes through what I like about it is, you know, we're in the machine era now, 1974, but Aldrin Watson really goes through and talks about how a lot of the work um, was and was done still without machines because in, in a lot of the country shops in the early 20th century to mid 20th century, they still were be, being done that way because a lot of those country shops didn't have access to machines. Um, and it's all hand, hand line drawings and um, it, it doesn't really go into any projects, but it does talk a lot about, um, you know, pricing. There's some, I think there's some, some stuff on pricing work in there and, and how some of the work was done um, as well as just how a lot of the tools were used and a lot of the different tools that were available. Um, and again, that book was written in 1974. Illustrated Furniture Making, Graham Blackburn, 1977. So this one is one of those that kind of crosses the lines because it is projects because Graham Blackburn, Graham Blackburn set this book up so that what he was doing was teaching skills by building projects. And it's something that I think is, is fantastic. And it's actually a book that I wanted to rewrite was essentially going from bare bones, minimum, know nothing and taking you up through more and more complex projects until you have all these skills under your belt. Um, and it's one of my favorite books because of that, the way that the way that Graham teaches and writes the book um, is just great because it, it goes from a very simple box project straight up through things like chest of drawers, you know, where, where things are getting more complex you know, nailed joinery all the way up through half-blind dovetails and things like that. So uh, it's really good for that. And there's, there are a lot of techniques in there, but there are also some projects in there because he's teaching by building projects. He's not just going through and teaching the joinery. He's teaching the joinery and how it's used. 
um, The Essential Woodworker by Robert Wearing, 1988. That was written. Again, it's another it's another good book on joinery, how the tools are used, uh, etc. Uh, one of my favorites, more more recent books, is a book called American Furniture of the 18th Century by Jeffrey Green. And this is another one of those books that crosses the line. So Jeffrey Green is a furniture maker, and and I think he was in Rhode Island or, or Boston. But um, he specializes mostly in Newport reproductions. But he his book covers everything from you know late 17th century furniture through the 18th century into the federal period, um, and actually through the early 19th century into Regency. And he he builds a lot of those pieces in the second half of the book. The first half of the book goes through a lot of the social aspects of each one of these periods and how, you know, how the designs changed and how things changed based upon the the time and the era. And then in the second half of the book, he goes through how a lot of these pieces of furniture were built. And the great thing is there's a lot of exploded drawings and things that will show you exactly how the pieces went together and how they were built. And it's not so much a book on how to use hand tools, but more how these old pieces of furniture were built. So you're not going to find, you know, any biscuit joiners or, or, or dominoes or anything like that. It's all going to be traditional joinery and, and traditional methods for how these things were built, even though he's, he might be building the pieces that he shows you how to build with, um, you know, with power tools and, and electric lathes and things like that. Um, the, the joinery and the construction methods are all very traditional. Um, and then finally, there's all the all the Woodwright's books by Roy Underhill are, are great. But um, I'm going to, in order to, to pick one, I'm going to say The Woodwright's Guide um, that Roy Underhill wrote in 2008. And again, it goes through lots of different aspects of the craft from felling trees to building log cabins uh, to building fine furniture. So another great book lot, full of lots of techniques and saw sharpening and just about everything you would imagine uh, from Roy. So those are what I would consider all the books on tools and techniques. This next list is going to be more project and design inspiration. Um, so what you're going to see is these are a lot more type, picture type books, not so much books on the tools themselves. Uh, so my first one is American Furniture in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Early Colonial Period. Um, and a lot of the books that are going to be on this list are going to be from museum collections. This is where we can start to really get into things, narrow our, our, our focus or broaden it, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, my, my early focus, and for a lot of years, what I really, really loved doing was studying and building period furniture reproductions, and I, I built a few of those. Um, but I, I find myself building fewer and fewer of those today because mostly because I have nothing to do with that furniture. Um, period, 18th century period, brown furniture just doesn't fit in a lot of households. It doesn't even fit in my own household. We don't have, we don't really have any of it. We have a, um, the Porringer table that I built for my YouTube channel, um, several years ago, but that's about all we have in terms of, of period furniture left in our house. Um, because it, it just really does not fit in with our aesthetic. I love to build it. Um, it's challenging. It's fun. There's a lot of different aspects to it. 
Um, and it, it's just a lot of fun to build that furniture, but I don't keep any of it in my house because it's just not really our style. And more and more, what we're finding is that period furniture reproductions are not selling as well. Antique period furniture is not selling as well because people are losing interest in old brown furniture. But what I like about these books is that they can give you a lot of inspiration, even if you're not into period furniture, um, for types of projects and, and different things that you can build. There are so many different pictures and so many different examples of furniture in these museum books that you can get so many different ideas from. Um, and going through them and seeing the different types of carvings that they did and seeing the different types of veneering and inlay just gives you so many different options and so many different ideas for what you can do with wood and what you can do with furniture. So that's why I use a lot of these museum books and why I keep them around, even though I don't really build too much period furniture anymore, uh, just for inspiration and, you know, different types of furniture that a lot of them are not so common today. Um, you know, we can, we can still use these books for, for inspiration. Um, the second one is American Furniture in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, late colonial period. Again, it's just more furniture from the Met um, later period. Uh, American Furniture, Queen Anne and Chippendale period, Joseph Downs. This is the Winterthur collection. And similarly, American Furniture, the Federal period by um, Joseph Downs, the Winter uh, Winterthur. Uh, actually, I don't know that that one's Joseph Downs, but the Federal period. It's, again, it's, a, it's another Winterthur book. And... Um, you know, again, just a lot of examples of different types of furniture and different things that you can do with wood from veneering to inlay and bandings and carvings. And, and there's just so much to be inspired by in these books. Um, another museum piece, Southern Furniture, uh, 1680 to 1830. This was a, a, this is a book on the Colonial Williamsburg collection. Again, more different styles of furniture. What I like about the Williamsburg book is You'll find they do have some some fantastic, high style, very ornate, highly decorated pieces, but they also you also start to now get into a style that they call plain and neat, which is less ornate, less ornamented, but still very solidly built, you know, more not nailed together type furniture, right? It's still good, solid quality furniture built maybe a little bit less expensive for maybe slightly less well-to-do families and also people with maybe slightly less, um, less, less ornate taste. You know, they wanted things a little simpler, a little plainer. They weren't crazy about all of the, the crazy Rococo embellishment that you're seeing coming out of like Philadelphia. So they wanted their own style. So things start to get a little plainer, a little simpler, but they have their own style in, in a lot of the Southern furniture. And it's really interesting and neat to see the differences. Make a Winter Chair with Mike Dunbar. This is one of my favorite books on chair making. Um, Mike pretty much wrote the, the original book on Windsor chair making. And to this day, it's still very much uh, appropriate if you're into building Windsor style chairs, any, st any Windsor style chair. He takes you through the construction of two different chairs from start to finish, all the processes involved. Um, and it's, it's just a great book for Windsor chair making. Um, similarly, the chairmaker's notebook, Peter Galbert, this is a more recent book on Windsor chair making, but 
the the techniques that they show in these books, both Mike Dunbar and Peter Galbert, are they're they're so expandable. You can you can use them outside of Windsor Building. You know, from things like using the draw knife and the spoke shave, um, you know, axe work and ads work. Um, it's it's things that you can do. It, it's skills that you can learn to build other things as well. Um, so these, again, these are books that cross the line between project and technique. Um, but I love just looking through Mike Dunbar's book and through, and through, uh, Peter Galbert's book for all of the, uh, all of the different pictures and, and things like that. And I get so much inspiration from looking at the old chairs. And every time I look through, uh, Mike's book, you know, I, I get the itch to build a chair. I still haven't built a full-on Windsor. I've done stools. I've done um, other types of of staked pieces that you know would come close, but nothing an actual Windsor chair. And I'm still itching to do that. And every time I look through Mike Dunbar's book, I I get that itch again. So um, another book would be uh, Jenny Alexander's or John Alexander's "Make a Chair from a Tree," um, and this was the you know the original book that or the book that inspired his later video on making a post and rung chair. Uh, another great design, another great chair to build and always inspirational to me when I watch that video or, or look at that book. Um, and finally, Making Authentic Country Furniture by John Shea. This is a book, again, that goes through lots of different, you might want to, you might call it vernacular furniture, right? This is not furniture for the rich. This was furniture for the everyday person. And this is really where my interest lies today. You know, when I, when I first started down the hand tool route, I really was into the high style period furniture with the carvings and the veneers and the inlay. But over time, I've really fallen into this more vernacular style furniture, this more the furniture for everyday use, the furniture for the common folk type of, of thing. And that's what this book really is. It's it's antique furniture that was really made for the common folk. Um, and that's why this book speaks to me so much because it's it's really where I am in my journey today as I've gotten more away from the high style stuff into um, trying to focus and, and build, um, you know, good solid, nice, you know, good looking furniture, but stuff that's really meant to be used, meant to be sat in, meant to, you know, have stuff stored in it, not meant to go on display. It's really furniture that, that is meant for the common person. And that's really um, where I am today and why I'm leaving off with this book, because it's uh, it's sort of one of those books that got me to where I am. You know, when I when I started to get away from the period furniture, really looking into, um, you know, more, more common folk type furniture. And this is one of those books that I keep going back to, to look for lots of different design ideas and inspiration. So, uh, it is absolutely, it's certainly one of my favorites, though, possibly one of the, the lesser known ones, uh, out there. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this. Because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please, please, please send in feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because the show depends upon your input and participation. Record a voice memo on your phone, email it to bob at brfindwoodworking.com, or leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. 
or use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. But definitely uh, use the, the voice memo feature or the voicemail. I'd really like to start playing uh, playing more calls on the show rather than me just reading questions. So, you know, if you have a question, certainly uh, record it in a voice memo and send it over. Uh, it'd probably even be faster than typing it out or, or, you know, just call that voicemail line. Again, it's 276-601-3123 and you can record your, uh, your question there. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash HTT 013. And in the show notes, you'll find any links that I referred to today. And you can also find links to follow me on any of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon. You can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can send me a handsaw for sharpening. And you'll find links for all of these options in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.